You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. O Shepherd of Israel, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to your word, that lead us beside the still waters of your voice and your word, that we might feast upon what we see of Christ and what he has done for us. May we walk away from here with an increased appreciation for our Savior, that you would fill our hearts with wonder, love, and praise for you, for your Son, what you have done for us in the salvation that you have given to us and in the atonement of Christ. May you be glorified here through our time and our study together. Bless this time with your presence to the end that we might know you better than when we came in here and that we might be drawn near to your heart, we pray, O God, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's jump into John chapter 10, which is what we've been studying and looking at the attributes of our Savior, the Shepherd, the Good Shepherd. And just by way of quick review, we have seen several things about the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has given to us. We have seen, first of all, that he is the sincere shepherd of the sheep. That was in the first part of John 10, that being the sincere shepherd, he is the true owner of the sheep. He is not the doorkeeper. He is not a thief. He is not a robber. He is, in contrast to all the Pharisees and the the Sadducees and the leaders of the people of Israel, he is the genuine, true shepherd of God's people because he owns God's people, because the Father has given those people to the Son. Second, we saw that Christ is the summoning shepherd, that he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. He comes up to the sheepfold, as it were, and and issues a call, and his sheep hear his voice, and they come to him. They don't go to strangers. They don't follow after false teachers. They don't go after the wolves because his sheep are able to hear his voice, and they follow him, and they are not deceived, and they don't, they're not led astray, and they're not lost because these people come to him. And he knows his own, and his own know him. He is the summoning shepherd. Then we saw that Christ is the supplying shepherd. And he supplies his people, his sheep, with salvation and with sustenance, leading them out and into the sheepfold, uh, security by night, sustenance out in the pasture or the fields by day. And he provides for his sheep also the abundant life in John 10, verse 10. And I would remind you of John 10, verse 10, that if your view of the abundant life, if you think that that is something, if, if your, I should say it this way, if your view of the abundant life is something that can be enjoyed by any unbeliever apart from union with Christ, Your view of the abundant life is wrong. That means that it's not prosperity. It's not health and happiness. It's not all the things that this world has to offer. That is something that Christ gives to his sheep alone. Christians enjoy the abundant life. No unbeliever can enjoy any element of the abundant life because the abundant life is salvation. That was John 10 all the way up to verse 10. Now we're looking at verses 11 through Really, verse 18, and in this section of John John chapter 10, we see Christ as the sacrificial shepherd. He is the sincere shepherd, the summoning shepherd, the supplying shepherd, and now the sacrificial shepherd. And these verses are near and dear to us, familiar to many of us. And we're going to be looking at two things, and we're going to read this passage. And as we read this passage, I'm going to show you the outline that we're going to be using as we work our way through these verses in the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at two elements of the sacrifice. Number one, the beneficiaries of the sacrifice. That's in verses 11 through 16. And then second, the sovereign and voluntary nature of the sacrifice, verses 17 and 18. First, the beneficiaries. And then second, the sovereign and voluntary nature 
of his sacrifice. So this passage has to do with Christ giving himself for his sheep, laying down his life for his sheep. So let's look at that outline as we work our way through, beginning of verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Now I want you to notice there the emphasis again on the ownership. This shepherd sacrifices himself because he is the owner of these sheep that are being discussed. He's the owner of them. That's verses 11 through 13. The second reason he gives himself for his sheep is because he knows his sheep. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. That's his ownership or his knowledge of the sheep. He knows the sheep. Then in verse 16, he gives his life for the sheep so that he can unite the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. That those are the beneficiaries of his sacrifice. He gives himself for his sheep because he owns his sheep, he knows his sheep, and he unites his sheep. Now in verses 17 and 18, I want you to notice the voluntary and sovereign nature of his sacrifice. Verse 17, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. That describes a voluntary and sovereign sacrifice. So let's begin with the beneficiaries of the sacrifice. We're going to look at verses 11 through 13 today. And we're going to see that Christ gives himself for his sheep because he owns the sheep. And this issue of ownership, as we're going to see, we work our way through the passage. This issue of ownership is the key, is a key element in this whole analogy. If you take that fact, who Christ owns and by what virtue, how he owns his sheep. If you take that out of the analogy, the whole thing means absolutely nothing. It is his ownership of the sheep and his unique relationship to his sheep and what uniquely he has done for his sheep and his sheep alone that is the key to this whole shepherding analogy. All right, verses 11 through 13, the beneficiaries because we are the beneficiaries because he owns his sheep. Look how he begins verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Now that's repeated in verse 14. And this is the fourth of seven of what we call the I am statements of John. Fourth of seven I am statements of John. These are, we've seen in John that over 20 times Jesus uses the, the words, words I am to describe himself, speaking of himself. Some of them are clearly claims to deity, like John 8:58. Before Abraham was, I am. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Those are claims to the I am name title of John or Exodus chapter 3 where Moses was at the burning bush. And God said to Moses, you shall say to the children of Israel, the I am has sent you. So when Jesus in John 8 says, I am, he's using a divine title. Seven times in John's gospel, Jesus uses these unique metaphors or analogies where he says, I am, but then he follows it by a predicate nominative, sort of fills in the blank at the end to give some analogy of himself, his person and his work. This is the fourth of seven of the I am's. Now remember I told you in John, the beginning of John, if you can memorize the seven discourses and the seven signs of John's gospel, you have a good handle on the outline. Fortunately, if you memorize the seven discourses, you pretty much know the seven I am statements. In John 6, verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. That's the first one. In John 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. That's the second one. The third one is right here in John chapter 10, I am the door. John 10, 7 and John 10, 9. 
And then the fourth one is, I am the good shepherd, verse 11 and verse 14. There are three more. I am the resurrection and the life, John chapter 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. And I am the vine, John 15, and I'm not sure which verse it is, but it's in John 15, the, the, the vine or the upper room discourse. So those are the seven I am statements of John's gospel. Seven signs, seven discourses, seven I am statements. Now you think, maybe John had a penchant for the number seven, right? Or is that just an accident of inspiration? I don't know if it's an accident or not, but you can't get into any kind of numerology and say, well, we have three sevens, and you know how some people will do that? You've seen them on TV. We're not going to get into that. Just to observe, there are seven I am statements, and they are all connected with these discourses that Jesus is giving, that he is the now the good shepherd. Verse 11 and verse 14. The word good translated there is kind of a, it's a very robust and full word. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, it's a robust and full word good, different than our English word for good. It's kalos in the Greek. Our English word good, it kind of really doesn't mean much of anything at all. Have you ever noticed that? The weather is good. Dinner was good. It's all good. What do those words mean? What does the word mean? What does the word good mean in any of those instances? We can use the word good to describe something that is pleasant, something that is pleasurable, something that is pretty, something that is uh, uh, enjoyable, something that is good to me. We can use the word good to describe something that is morally good. We can use the word good just to describe something that's copacetic. It's all good. That means there's nothing bad happening. But the Greek word for good here is a word that's far more meaningful and far more profound than that. It's not just speaking of Jesus' moral qualities, His moral goodness, as in Jesus is a good shepherd who does good things, morally speaking, as opposed to bad shepherds who do bad things, morally speaking. It's not just that idea. Though Jesus is morally good, that's not just what the word, that, that alone is not what this word means. This word refers to something that is noble in character and something that has an attractive element about it. In fact, this word, kalos, has been translated beautiful. I am the beautiful shepherd. The word means something that is inherently good and noble, but something that has a goodness about it that is attractive, that draws, somebody is drawn to it because of its, its beauty and its goodness. You understand how this is different than just a moral goodness. Somebody can be morally good without being attractive. And I don't mean physical appearances. You know what I mean? Somebody can be morally good without having an attractive quality about them. Think Pharisees. The Pharisees were morally what? Good. Was anybody drawn to the Pharisees? Right? Were they, were they attractive in their demeanor? Attractive in their character? They weren't. This word describes something that is so inherently good, it is beautiful, and people are drawn to it. That's the word that's being used. I am the good shepherd. And there's something about the word shepherd that you and I don't catch at first reading, but this would have been something that a Jew understood. And listen to me carefully so you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The word shepherd was sometimes translated autocrat. So what I am about to suggest to you is not something that applies to pastors as shepherds. I'm not an autocrat. I don't have autocratic or sovereign authority over anybody in this congregation. Neither do any of the other elders. But in the Jewish way of thinking, the shepherd was, in a sense, the sovereign over his sheep. A shepherd had full control over all of the care and administration and the the tending of his sheep. The shepherd decided which sheep got sheared. The shepherd decided which sheep got fed, when they got fed, where they got fed, where they spent the night, where they drank water, which sheep got sacrificed, which sheep got bred. Everything under the, uh, everything concerning the care and administration of the sheep rested under the sovereign control of the shepherd. So in a Jewish mind, when you talked about being a shepherd of something, that meant that you had full and sovereign control over that group of animals. 
And that is, in a sense, the, I think, the idea that is, that is true in, with Jesus and his body, the church. He is our shepherd. And the word shepherd does have the idea of care and compassion and love and concern and nurturing. But never think for a moment that just because Jesus is all of those things to his church, his sheep, that we as the sheep are able to walk over top of him. Because listen, he is still our king. He is still the sovereign. We have to remember that. So in terms of the good shepherd, he is the benevolent autocrat. A very kind sovereign. That I think, those two words I think are the best way, at least to me, the most precious way of describing Jesus Christ. He is my kind and good sovereign. He is sovereign, but he is good. And listen, you have to have those two concepts in your mind together. If you just have an idea that God is sovereign, but you do not have his goodness, that will terrify you. That will terrify you. Because he is sovereign, he can do whatever he wants to me. But his sovereignty does not terrify me because I'm convinced of his goodness. And because he is good, I can trust him in his sovereignty. He is a good and kind sovereign. Uh, uh, let me give you kind of a little bit of analogy. In our home, my kids, we have this joke in our, in our family amongst our kids. They will sometimes say that they want to vote on something. Who wants to go out for dinner? Or who wants to go to this place for dinner? Who wants to do this this afternoon? And I have to remind them from time to time, I'm not running a democracy here. This is not a constitutional republic. There's five votes represented here, but my vote counts for five and a half. This is, this is a benevolent dictatorship. As your dad, I am interested in your best good and the good of this entire family. But you have to understand, we don't vote on anything here. I am in my own home, the sovereign. But I am good to you, and I promise you that I will do everything I can because I have your interests in mind. It is, in a very similar sense, the same with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the good autocrat. He is the beautifully attractive shepherd of his sheep. That is such a beautiful analogy. You and I have to also think of this term good shepherd, or this title good shepherd, in, ter- in terms of how an, a first century Jew would have heard this, this title. We are 2,000 years separated from a first century Jew, so when we read the terms good shepherd, we have something in our mind that they wouldn't have had in their minds, and they had something in their minds that we don't necessarily immediately connect. The two things that they had in their mind that we don't necessarily connect with the terms good shepherd are, number one, a title of divinity, and number two, a title of messiahship. This is a divine title in the Old Testament, and it is a title of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Let me give you a couple examples of both. First, it is the title of divinity in the Old Testament. And I've reminded you before of Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 28, verse 9, which we read earlier this morning. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forever. This was a prayer of the people or of David to God to be his shepherd. Ultimately, the nation of Israel looked to God as the shepherd, as the one who would care and tend for them. Psalm 80, verse 1. Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You are enthroned above the cherubim. Shine forth. And then Isaiah 40, verse 11. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with His arm ruling for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. Like a shepherd, He will tend His flock. In His arm, He will gather the lambs and carry them in His bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. So that's the imagery that is used of the nation of Israel and their relationship with God. So an Old Testament Jew thought of Yahweh as their shepherd. So when Jesus arrives on the scene in this context and says, I am that good shepherd, what do you think first century Jews heard? They heard him using the the, the language of Psalm 23, 
the language of Isaiah chapter 40, and they understood exactly what he was claiming, which is why in verse 20 they say he's insane. He is saying things that only an insane man would say he's demon-possessed because they understood exactly what he was claiming to be. He was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be God. That is a, a divine title or a divine imagery that Jesus applies to himself. Second, it is also a title or imagery of the Messiah. And there are passages in the Old Testament that spoke of the Messiah coming and being a shepherd for Israel. So now we have in Jesus these two imageries, the imagery of, of uh, sorry, the divine title, the divine title itself and the imagery of a of the Messiah. It is a divine title and it is a messianic title. Let me give you a couple examples of the messianic title. You're familiar with this prophecy, Micah 5, verse 2, which says, As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. You read that on Christmas cards all the time at Christmas, a prophecy of the birth of Christ. Well, two verses later, verse 4 says, And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. In Ezekiel chapter 34, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. In Zechariah 13, verse 7, and this is familiar to you because Jesus quotes this of himself in Matthew 26, Zechariah 13, 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. So those are all prophetic references to the coming Messiah using the imagery of one who would be a shepherd. So if we were to look at, now we look at the Old Testament through New Testament eyes, through the full revelation of the person of Christ, and we see that this one who has come, who claimed to be the good shepherd, is both God and he is Messiah. He is both God and Messiah. And that is how a Jew would have understood that. He's claiming to be God. He is claiming to be the Messiah. That's why, as I said in verse 20, they claimed that he was crazy. They said he was nuts. He's insane. What is the good shepherd going to do? The good shepherd is going to lay down his life for the sheep. That phrase, lay down his life, is used five times in this passage, and I want you to see all the references to it. In verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Then in verse 15, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. In verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. That phrase is something that only John uses, by the way. Only John refers to Jesus dying with that phrase, laying down his life. And that phrase has in it the idea of a complete voluntary sacrifice. A completely voluntary sacrifice. Not one who is killed by an accident of history, or one who is martyred for his faith, but one who came with the intended purpose of laying down his life for his sheep. So it's a voluntary sacrifice that he is describing there, and that's how John uses the language even in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, where he says, we know by this that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So he's going to, the, 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 the sacrificial shepherd is going to lay down, that is forfeit, or give up, willingly, voluntarily, as an act of his own will, he was driven to the cross so that he might sacrifice or pour out his life for his sheep. And that's what the good shepherd came to do. Look at verse 11. He's going to lay down his life for the sheep. And he who is a hired hand, verse 12, and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The good shepherd does what no hired hand would ever do. He lays down his life for the sheep. 
No hireling will ever do that. No hireling would ever give his life to rescue a sheep from a wolf. That's not what hirelings did. Do you know what a hired hand or a hireling would do? Why, why would a hireling, why did a hireling sign on to watch the sheep in the first place? What was the motive? Hire. That's the term hireling. He was in it for the money. No hireling is ever going to get paid enough that he would think himself, that he would think it worth risking his life for the sake of the sheep. You and I can understand this. He's not the owner of the sheep. The hireling doesn't own the sheep, so the hireling is not interested in laying down his life or giving up or sacrificing or risking himself for the sake of the sheep. Sheep that aren't his, he doesn't care. He doesn't have any vested interest in those sheep. So when the hireling is watching the flock, if a wolf comes in and grabs onto one of the sheep, what's the hireling going to do? Hey, it's just one sheep. I mean, i got 99 others over here in the flock. I can sacrifice one. I don't get paid enough. To risk my life with that wolf? Have you ever said that? Have you ever had a job where they asked you to do something so dangerous that you said to yourself, I don't get paid enough to do this? I had a guy that I worked with roofing who did that. Every once in a while, we'd get on a roof that was so dangerous, so hairy, that he'd say, you know what? You don't pay me enough for this. Now, unfortunately, he was on the food chain above me, and I wasn't experienced enough to have the luxury to say to the boss, you don't pay me enough to do this. So I got up there, and I got paid to get experience that day in doing something that nobody else wanted to do. You understand the concept of a, of a hireling, and their interest is not in the sheep. Their interest is in the paycheck. And the hireling looks at the wolf and looks at the paycheck. I don't get paid enough to do this. Let me make, let me give you another situation that would be analogous to this. I want you to imagine that your next door neighbor walks over to you and he's carrying his poodle with him and he says, I'm going to go on a two week vacation. I'd like you to watch my poodle for me. Now the neighbor, you think I'm not really interested in poodles per se. Uh, I'm really not a big fan of poodles, but Last time I was out of town on garbage day, my neighbor brought, took my garbage out to the road for me so that the garbage man picked it up. And, you know, he kind of watches my house and picks up my mail when I'm on vacation. I'll return the favor. I'll watch his poodle for him. So you start to poodle sit. Now, a couple nights into your poodle sitting job, you're laying there sleeping and you smell smoke. And you get up and you realize your house is on fire. So you gather up your kids and some precious belongings. You call 911. You get out of the house, out on the street. You're sitting there watching the flames inside of your house, waiting for the fire department to show up. And suddenly you realize I locked poodle, the poodle, in the laundry room for the night. And let me ask you a question. Do you rush into a burning building to save that poodle? It's your neighbor's poodle. Do you really care? I mean, do you really care about a poodle? Now, if it's an Airedale or a German Shepherd, you might think to yourself, all right, but after all, it's a poodle. And it's not your poodle. It's not your poodle. Now, maybe you're saying, Jim, I would rush into a burning building to save a poodle. You're a better man than me, Gungadin. That's all I can say. You're far better than me. I wouldn't do that. I would look at it and say, the poodle's going to burn. I'm not rushing in and sacrificing anything for the sake of a poodle, particularly a poodle that is not my poodle. It's my neighbor's poodle. I'm not concerned about the poodle because it doesn't belong to me. But I would be vested and have a vested interest and concern for something that what? Belonged to me. That's the issue of ownership. Look at verse 13. He flees because he's a hired hand and he's not concerned about the sheep. He's there for the money. Now, it may be that what Jesus is, in, what Jesus is intending here is a reference to the Pharisees and the Sadducees as being the hired men or the hired hand in this analogy. That might be. They didn't care about sheep. They weren't concerned about anything but what the sheep could sacrifice for them. But I want you to notice that this whole analogy, the idea of a shepherd sacrificing himself for the sheep, notice how turned on its head that would be to what they would have expected. They were familiar in their sacrificial system of Old Testament worship. They were familiar with sheep dying for the shepherds. The shepherd would sacrifice the sheep and by faith believe that in sacrificing that innocent animal for his sin, he could live 
by virtue of that animal's appeasing the wrath of God on his behalf. So they were familiar with animals dying for their shepherds. This is something radically different. Here is the shepherd dying for his animals. That was entirely different. That was an entirely radical twist on what they were familiar with. Let me give you a couple other interesting twists on the analogy. If an Israelite shepherd died for his sheep, it was entirely an accident. You can understand that, right? No shepherd ever went out at night and said, I'm going to go out today and I'm going to do something to to sacrifice myself and die for the sheep. Shepherds lived for their sheep. They wanted to live for their sheep. If a shepherd happened to die out in the field while tending his sheep, it was completely accidental. No shepherd ever did that intentionally. But what does the language of this passage suggest? Jesus did this intentionally. An Israelite shepherd, if he died, it was an accident. Our good shepherd, when he died, that was the reason why he came. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10.45. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die. That was his intention. This was not an accident. The crucifixion is not an account of what men did to Jesus, but what Jesus did for men. It's entirely different. A second kind of twist on this analogy is that if an Israelite shepherd died, it meant... It meant the total devastation and destruction of the sheep. The worst thing that could possibly happen to a flock out in the field was to have their shepherd die. Because then they were certain to be scattered and destroyed and, and, and threatened by every conceivable threat. Wolves, thieves and robbers, other shepherds would pick them up because the death of the shepherd meant the destruction of the sheep. But it is the complete opposite with the death of the good shepherd, isn't it? The death of the good shepherd means not destruction for his, the sheep, but security and safety and salvation and deliverance for his sheep. So it's a little bit of a different twist on that analogy. So I'm the good shepherd, Jesus says. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. He lays it down on his own accord. It is a voluntary action. It's not accidental, and it means the deliverance for the sheep. Now I want you to notice again something we started with. This whole The, the whole analogy hinges on this element, that Jesus is the owner of the sheep. And I asked you several weeks ago, how did he become the owner of his sheep? Did he become the owner of the sheep when I decided to become his sheep? Did he become the owner of the sheep by virtue of my decision? Or did he become the owner of the sheep by virtue of the Father giving the sheep to him? This this point of ownership goes all the way through the entire analogy, all the way down to verse the end of verse 26. Where Jesus says, you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. It goes further. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than I. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus is the owner of the sheep. And that's the key thing to keep in mind all the way through this entire analogy. You remove that and nothing else makes sense. Why is it that the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep? Is it because you and I are so valuable? Are you valuable? I got news for you, you're really not. I mean, really, you're like all the other sheep in the fold, right? Ruined by sin, destroyed by sin, lost, depraved, helpless, wicked, in rebellion. You're just like every other person in the, in the fold or in all of humanity. There's nothing special about you. The shepherd didn't give his life for his own sheep because they were sheep. And as if sheep are more valuable than poodles or German shepherds or any other animal animal in the animal kingdom. He didn't give his life for sheep because they're sheep. He gave his life for the sheep. Why? Because they're his. That's what makes them valuable. You and I, if there is any value in us as human beings, it is because 
the Father has given us to His Son. And because we belong to the Son, the Son says, I will love them, I will die for them, I will save them, I will secure them, and I will sanctify them, and I will make them my own for all of eternity. It is because He owns us that He loves us and He gave Himself for us. It's not because we are valuable. It is because we were given to Him by the Father. I want you to imagine how much value the Son would place upon the humanity that is given to Him by the Father. How valuable is that gift? That gift is valuable because it came from whom? From the Father. Do you think the Father loves the Son? Do you think the Son loves the Father? Do you think the Spirit loves the, fa- loves the Father and the Son? What gives the sheep their value? This has been given to me by the Father. And it is an expression of His love for me. And because of His expression of His love for me, I will love them, I will gather them in, I will secure them, and He will die for them. Now this brings up a theological question that is probably sort of firing in your mind right now. And if you're familiar with church history, then you know that this theological issue is something that has has been discussed for hundreds, 2,000 years. And the theological issue is this. And this passage bears upon this theological question. Theological question is this. For whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? In other words, did he die for all men equally? Or did he do something special for those that belong to him that he did not do for Pharaoh and those who were suffering in hell at the very moment that he was dying and atoning for the sins of his people? For whom did Christ die? Did he just make salvation possible? And die for nobody in particular, just everybody, but not you in any particular or specific sense? Or did he come to die and to lay down his life in the place of, as a substitute for, the sins of a particular people, their particular sins, and bore their wrath on behalf of those who belong to him? That is the question we're going to tackle next week. There's not time to deal with it today, not because we had a bunch of announcements and we're running out of time and we have communion and all of that. But this issue really is something that we need to think clearly about because the implications of this are profound and far-reaching. It has to do with our theology of the justice of God and the foreknowledge of God and whether he knows what he is doing and whether he had any particular thing in mind specifically when he sent his son to die on the cross. Or was it just an accident of history? He came and he died and because of that, He just made all men savable. But he didn't die for anybody in particular. Or did he actually bear the wrath as a substitute, bear the wrath of his people so that he could die in their place? That's what we're going to tackle next week. For our communion this morning, we're going to just reflect upon what we have seen so far. We can, whether we believe that he died for all men, everybody, or whether we believe that he died for a specific limited group of people, we still can see in John chapter 10 that he died for his sheep. And his sheep are those whom he atoned for. If you are belonging to Christ today by virtue of the fact that you have repented of your sins and trusted Christ for salvation, then you can affirm that Christ died in my stead. He died for me. I know that. He died for sinners. Charles Spurgeon said, I, I read in Scripture that Christ died for sinners, and I said to myself, I'm a sinner. And therefore I know that Christ died for me, and I can come to him, and there is there is atonement in his blood. There is provision there for my forgiveness and my sacrifices, my forgiveness and uh, my righteousness. And so I will cast my hope entirely upon Christ and Christ alone. 
So as we observe communion today, we are reminded of the fact that Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood which is the new covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We all believe that Jesus Christ died as a sacrifice for sins, at least if you have trusted him. And we all believe that Jesus Christ's sacrifice of sins atoned for our sin. That is what gives us the righteousness of Christ and gives us the righteousness that we need to stand before God. So we'll take a few moments together. We will pray together, confessing our sin, repenting of our sin, remembering that sacrifice of Christ, and then we'll partake of communion together. Let's bow our heads. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.